curiosity a true crime podcast i'm your host jade and thank you so much for joining me today i know that i have been gone for a really long time none of that was planned i life happened and so many unexpected things happen so this is just going to be a quick little life update if you care if you want to know so In June, my grandmother was laid to rest in a different country. And that same day, I had military duties to attend to. And when I say that we're outside for the entire month, we're outside for the entire month of June. And it was so hot. It was like 100 plus degrees every single day. The low, maybe like 90. I experienced so much overheating, heat rash. We're just dropping like flies. And it was absolutely horrendous. In July, I'm trying not to tear up because I'm literally tearing up as I'm saying this now, but a friend of mine was murdered and was buried on my birthday. And it's, I felt guilty about it because here I am, it's my birthday and I'm a year older than I was yesterday. And then here's someone whose life was literally taken from them and they will never get to experience their 20s or the rest of their life. And it hurt. It does. And I think when you cover true crime cases or you just know of a true crime case, you can only imagine what a family member is going through or, you know, their friends. But when you go through it, when you know someone yourself that has had their life taken from them, it is a completely different feeling. And, you know, I think by covering true crime cases, you become numb to the to the idea that there are people that are evil out there. But my gosh, when it happens to someone you know, you're like, wow, there are really, really evil people out there that decided to take someone's life, someone that you knew, and it hurts. Again, I'm, that's... I always get nervous to talk about it, especially like on a podcast, but yeah, it's the first time that I've dealt with grief at this age, as well as like it being so close to like my grandmother passing away. So it was just a really hard time. And my mom and my sister, um, they were hurt by it. They were shocked. I mean, I've never seen my mom react that way to anyone passing away but my mom doesn't have any sons it's just me and my sister and she can she always said that he was the son that she never had so that was absolutely heartbreaking to see her go through but 
they were really like the only two people that I talked to about, you know, just how do you deal with grief and how do you just the guilt of moving on with your life. So that happened. I also, I'm always in school, you know, when am I not in school, just trying to get that degree. (laughs) And I started freelance writing. I love writing. So I started that, which I was really proud of, but that's pretty much been it. I've just been learning to navigate dealing with grief that hits you on the most random days, as well as making time for my hobbies, just a whole lot of stuff. So I'm so sorry for being gone, but I have a new microphone. If you notice a difference, I notice a difference, but if you notice a difference, that's, I made a little upgrade. And if I also sound very sick and out of breath, it's because I have pollen allergies. It just, my body just can never get used to it. So I've been sneezing all morning. I sound stuffy. I apologize in advance. So without further ado, we're going to get into the episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the murders of Officer Milton Curtis and Richard Phillips that took 45 years to be solved. So without further ado, let's get started. El Segundo, California is where today's story takes place. It's about a 30-minute drive from Los Angeles. The word El Segundo translates to the second in Spanish, and it's one of the cities located on the Santa Monica Bay. July 21st, 1957 is a Sunday night. President Eisenhower was in office, and Elvis Presley's All Shook Up was the number one song in the United Kingdom. Gunsmoke, The Danny Thomas Show, and The Tales of Wells Fargo were a couple of the popular shows at the time. On the night of July 21st, 1957, 17-year-old Robert Duar went out with his date and another couple. They were parked on the side of the road, and that particular lane is known as Lover's Lane, which is a private spot on the side of the road where people make out and engage in sexual activities in their vehicles. Now, you might know or heard of or familiar with Lover's Lane because many of the victims of the Zodiac Killer were couples who were murdered in Lover's Lane in Northern California. Bob, also known as Robert, rolled the window down to get some fresh air when all of a sudden there is a gun being pointed at him through the window. The man demanded money as well as any valuables. He urged all four teenagers to get out of the car and remove their clothing. On Forensic Files, when Bob was telling the story, he said that they were just bound, not blindfolded, but every other source has said that they were both bound and blindfolded, so we're just going to go with what Bob said because he was the one that was there. Next, the man had them all lined up in the grass, just standing there, and Bob thought he was going to shoot all of them because all four teenagers had seen the man, therefore, if they reported it, they could give a perfect description of who the man was. But the man got in the 1949 Ford sedan and drove off. Between 1.15 and 1.20 a.m. on July 22, 1957, officers Richard Phillips and Milton Curtis were sitting in their patrol car at the intersection of Sepulveda and Rose Cranes. All of a sudden, a 1949 Ford sedan comes running through the red light. The two officers decided to 
pulled the car over and the car wasn't reported as stolen. So the officers were just thinking, oh, someone ran a red light. They weren't, they had no idea of what happened an hour ago. Officer Phillips got out of the car with his citation book and Officer Curtis was behind the wheel. Nothing again seemed out of the ordinary. It was just someone who ran the red light. Officer Curtis called in requesting to run the numbers on the license plate. The driver gets out of the car and starts shooting. Both officers were shot three times and Officer Phillips was able to get his firearm and fire six rounds at the car. Before help arrived, both officers were dead. Officer Curtis was still in the driver's seat with three gunshot wounds, one to the upper right chest, one to the right side, and one to his right forearm. And Officer Phillips was shot in the back. Both officers were shot with a 22 caliber short round and the killer escaped. So here is a little bit about the officers. Officer Richard Phillips was born on September 10th, 1928 in Muscogee County in Oklahoma. At the time of his death, he was 28 years old and once served in the Air Force during the Korean War. He was with the police department for nearly three years and was married with three children. Officer Milton Curtis was born on January 30th, 1932 in Phoenix, Arizona. At the time of his death, he was 25 years old and he was only a police officer for two months when he was murdered, leaving behind a wife and two children. With the help of many people out and about that night, they were able to create a composite sketch. Bob Dewar, who was on Lover's Lane with the other teenagers, gave a description of the man. He described him as a white male, early 20s, 6 feet tall, 190 pounds, dark blonde hair, with an unfamiliar accent. His accent was described as soft-spoken, slow, not educated, and had a drawl, which... According to Google, I had to look that up because I didn't really know. It means a slow, long way of speaking, and many people from the South speak like that. Margaret Osborne was heading home from work the night the police officers died. She was on Rosecranes Avenue, heading westbound, and stopped at the light. She saw the police car on the side of the road, and then a Ford sedan pulled up next to her. The car stopped for a moment and then ran the red light. She saw the officers take off to pursue the Ford sedan, and once the light turned green, she went on. Margaret said that she saw the driver standing outside the car and one of the police officers, which was Officer Phillips, shining a flashlight to get a better look at him. She described the driver as taller than the officer with husky shoulders. When I looked up husky, obviously the, the dog is going to pop up, but it said that husky means that they have strong, means that they're strong, so strong shoulders. She guessed he would be about 25 years old with either curly blonde hair or light brown hair, wearing a red plaid shirt. 19-year-old Alan King was driving on Rosecrans Road, coming home after his shift at the gas station. He saw the flashing lights of the police car and pulled off to the side. He claimed that, looking from the back porch of his house, he saw Officer Phillips and Curtis physically remove the driver 
from the car, and it caused a little hassle. Officer Curtis went back to the patrol car to radio something in. Alan King said that he went inside and came back running outside when he heard gunshots. He saw the man then get in the Ford sedan and speed off. A bolo was issued, which is a on, not on the lookout, be on the lookout for the Ford sedan, and it was then found four blocks from the original crime scene. When they found the car, they found three bullet holes from when Officer Phillips shot the vehicle. One bullet hole went through the trunk, and the other two went through the back window. Only two of the bullets were recovered from the car, and seeing as one bullet was missing, police thought maybe when Officer Phillips shot his weapon, he shot the person, and that's where the bullet must have been. Howard Speaks, who works in the Layton Print Division, which is the fingerprinting world, he was called to get some fingerprints from the car. He checked the rearview mirror for any fingerprints, which is a good place, if you ask me, because when you obviously go into a car, you fix the mirror to see behind you. Not all the time, but I guess if your intention is to steal the car, I don't know if he would do that, but... In a normal world, when you get a new car or whatever, you do fix the rearview mirror. But there were no fingerprints found. He then examined the steering wheel, where he discovered two partial fingerprints from the left thumb. Despite the fact that there were two partial prints, they were both from the same finger. Investigators had to compare the fingerprint to every other fingerprint in their file because they couldn't, you know, just put it in the system and rely on technology. It's 1957. And IAFIS, which is the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System, was not available at the time. So they had to literally examine the fingerprints with their own eyes and hands. Even with them investigating the fingerprints, they were not able to find a match. On July 26, 1957, Officer Phillips and Officer Curtis were buried beside each other at the Inglewood Park Cemetery. Three years later, in 1960, police get their first break. A man living on Manhattan Beach Street was doing some yard work, you know, pulling up some weeds, making the place look nice, when he found a handgun. The police were able to identify the gun as a nine-shot Harrington and Richardson 22 caliber revolver. Seeing as the gun was in the ground for three years, there were no fingerprints found. But they were able to get the serial number, and they were able to trace it from where it was purchased, from a Sears in Shreveport, Louisiana, by a man named G.D. Wilson for $29 on June 18, 1957. When they interviewed the owner of the store, they said that they remembered him because he sounded like he wasn't from Louisiana. It sounded more Southern than a Louisiana accent. The same day the gun was purchased, a George D. Wilson rented a room at the YMCA, which was across the street from the Sears store. George D. Wilson listed his home address as Miami, Florida. When police go to do their investigating in Miami for George's address, turns out the place is non-existent. 
For about four years, police checked the name George D. Wilson in the United States, and they found absolutely not a single soul in the United States named George D. Wilson, because the name was fake. Because of this, the case went cold. All through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, they could not find a single piece of evidence or a suspect. So, if you were not alive in the 1950s when this case occurred, you're probably now alive in September 2002. And if you weren't alive in September 2002, you were pretty much alive after all of this is done. In September 2002, 45 years later, the El Segundo Police Department receives a phone call from a lady who claims that her uncle once bragged about killing the two police officers in El Segundo in the 1950s. I also do not know why people brag about committing crimes like that. Like, a family member won't call up the police and be like, uh... I have the answers you're looking for. I don't know why they, I guess because they assume that their family isn't going to, you know, snitch on them. After all, it's my family. No, ring up that police officer, please. Thank you. When they approach the man to speak to him, he obviously denies saying anything like that. They compare his fingerprints to the one found on the steering wheel in 1957, but there was no match. But wait. There's more. <laughs> Fingerprint experts Dave Falcon and Don Keir decided to use technology this time to study and analyze the fingerprint. We are, of course, in 2002 now. And at this time, the FBI had developed IAFIS, which again is the Integrated Automated Fingerprint Identification System, which was created in July 1999. And following the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the FBI had a national security enhancement, according to the FBI website. They compiled a fingerprint database that included convicted felons from all 50 states. They enhanced the thumbprint by cleaning it up a little bit, you know, making it a little easier to see. A smear, for example, could prevent a fingerprint from being read. So once they, you know, cleaned that up, there were currently 47 million fingerprints in the system when they submitted the fingerprint to IAFIS in 2002. And guess what? The fingerprint was a match. Gerald Mason was identified by the fingerprint, who was now 70 years old and living in Columbia, South Carolina. Gerald Mason was born in 1934 in Columbia, South Carolina to a family of four brothers. In the early 1950s, he served in the United States Army before being honorably discharged. He enrolled in the University of South Carolina in 1954 and majored in business, but only stayed for one semester. Gerald was caught for burglary and larceny in April 1956, one year before the murders, and was sentenced to three years in prison. So his sentence was reduced to one year, and Gerald only served eight months instead. So, by December 1956, he was a free man. And it's crazy how technology, how this whole thing happened, because 
obviously, since he was caught and he was convicted, he was a convicted felon, and that is where the fingerprint came from in IAFA's was from his arrest in 1956. Gerald got married to his wife, Betty, in 1960. The couple had two daughters, and he subsequently became a grandfather. Before retiring in the 90s, Gerald owned a couple of gas stations in Columbia. Surprisingly, though, in South Carolina, the people that are in charge of submitting fingerprints to IAFIS had only begun that whole process two months before they caught him. Which makes you wonder, if his fingerprint wasn't in that batch, maybe he would have never been caught. Police brought in Bob DeWar, the teenager that got his car stolen on Lover's Lane in 1957 for a photo lineup to see if he could identify Gerald Mason as the man that stole the car, but obviously he couldn't because it was like 45 years later and Gerald aged a bit, aged a lot, so it was much harder. More evidence was needed to prove that this was the man who murdered the two officers decades ago. Gerald Mason signed his signature as George D. Wilson when he bought the handgun and rented a room at the YMCA in Shreveport, Louisiana. Gerald Mason's handwriting was analyzed to George D. Wilson's signature on the YMCA register by forensic document examiner Paul Edholm. Now, when it comes to analyzing someone's handwriting, they, you know, check for things like the height of the letter or the alignment to the baseline. So when Paul examined the two documents, he noted that Gerald's handwriting remained unchanged from 1957, when he was 23 years old, until 1999. As a result, Gerald Mason used the alias George D. Wilson, which we knew, but obviously, you know, you needed actual more proof, because proof evidence gets you somewhere, not speculation. And Gerald Mason was arrested for the murders of Officer Richard Phillips and Officer Milton Curtis on January 29, 2003, 46 years after they were murdered. Gerald's reaction, which threw me off and threw, I'm pretty sure threw everybody off, you know, when police informed him that he was being arrested for the murders. He said, quote, my God, you're here for that? That happened so long ago. I can't believe you're bothering me with that. End quote. Can you imagine? So I'm going to tell you pretty much everything that happened from the beginning, according to prosecutors and how, you know, they think everything went down. Gerald Mason, according to prosecutors, purchased the weapon in Shreveport, Louisiana, and then checked into the YMCA hotel under the alias George D. Wilson. When he visited California in 1957, they suspected he was under the influence of alcohol when he noticed Bob DeWar's car parked on Lover's Lane. He robbed them and held them at gunpoint and sexually assaulted one of the girls and then stole the car. Two police officers pulled Gerald over after he ran a red light. When Officer Phillips turned his back, Gerald got out of the car, pulled out his gun, and fired three shots into his back. Officer Curtis was killed by three shots fired through the windshield. Officer Phillips fired three shots at Gerald, and 
when they couldn't find the third bullet in the car, remember that two of the bullets went through the back window and the third went through the trunk, but they couldn't find that third bullet. So this is the icing on the cake. When Gerald was arrested, officers asked him to remove his shirt. And when he did, they discovered a bullet wound, proving that Officer Phillips had shot him, and that is where the third bullet was. And for 46 years, Officer Phillips marked Gerald for life. Gerald pleaded guilty to the murders of Officer Richard Phillips and Officer Milton Curtis, avoiding a public trial and receiving two life sentences. Rape, robbery, and kidnapping charges against him were dismissed as part of the plea deal. Officer Charlie Porter and Officer James Gilbert were officers who worked with Officer Phillips and Curtis. They said, quote, You can run, but you cannot hide. We'll find you, kill an officer, and we'll get you, no matter how long it takes. End quote. In court, Gerald apologized, saying, quote, It's impossible to express to so many people how sorry I am. I do not understand why I did this. It is not fit in my life. It is not the person I know. I detest these crimes. End quote. Carolyn Phillips, who is Richard Phillips' daughter, told him, quote, Your cowardly act shattered our lives forever. There is no way to describe the emptiness and anguish we have felt all our years without dad. We cannot and will not forgive you. End quote. Keith Curtis, who is Milton Curtis's son, said, quote, Gerald Mason, your family may be shocked, but my family has been devastated. End quote. On March 24th, 2003, Gerald was sentenced to prison and served his time in South Carolina because his plea deal said that he could serve time in South Carolina to be closer to his family. The same year, in 2003, People magazine did an interview with Gerald's daughter, and she said, quote, There really aren't words to describe the range of emotions we've gone through. I could not have had a better father. End quote. Gerald was denied parole in 2003. They wanted him to serve a maximum of 15 years before he was considered for parole. Gerald died on January 22, 2017, nine days before his 84th birthday, after spending 14 years in prison. End of episode thoughts? <laughs> did you know that Gerald didn't even get a traffic ticket throughout his life? I mean, there's many people that have never gotten a traffic ticket in their entire lives, but for someone to kill two police officers and just, like, live such a quiet life after that, it makes me question, you know, like, why did this happen? It is crazy how Gerald got to live his entire life as a normal citizen, got married, had kids, owned a couple gas stations, and literally became a grandfather. If Officer Phillips was alive today, he would have been 94 years old, and Officer Curtis would have been 90. When Gerald was arrested in 1956 and the murders happened, police examined the fingerprints manually because, you know, there was no technology, and he was literally non-existent. That, that is the crazy thing, is that Oh my god, I'm like at a loss for words. Technology is one hell of a thing. 
you know, I was wondering if his fingerprints weren't in the batch the first time that was sent to IAFIS because they had only been in the system for two months, you know, like, would they have ever caught him? Probably, I think they would, just not, you know, in 2002. A little fun fact is that as of April 30th, 2022, there are currently 73 million fingerprints in the IAFIS system. So, moral of the story is stop committing crimes. I do not think that it is hard to stop. Just pick a law-abiding hobby and mind your business. I want to say rest in peace to Officer Phillips and Officer Curtis. May they rest in peace and I think that we should appreciate the aim of Officer Phillips because he sure did leave his mark and for that he caught his own killer. And with that, today's story comes to an end. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I'm so sorry again that I have been gone for a long, long time, but your support on this podcast means the world to me. Remember, every Thursday is a new episode. You can keep up with me and the podcast at Instagram at Criminal Curiosity Pod. I now have a Twitter to broaden my horizon. A Twitter is Crim Curiosity and TikTok is Criminal Curiosity Pod. That is all I have for you today. Please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time. Bye, everyone.